Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Esther chapter 6. The book of Esther chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, we, we have these that we recently purchased. And we invite you to just look in the seat back in front of you. And there's a copy there. If you're uh, looking for F Esther chapter 6, is on page 385 in those Bibles. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, then that is our gift to you. Again, Esther chapter 6. And if you're using our church Bibles here, page 385. We've been making our way through this amazing book together, the book of Esther. And last week, we left off at a serious point in the text. There is a both serious and immediate problem. Haman, our antagonist, is incensed. Man, he, is he ticked off. He is threatened to his core because Mordecai the Jew will not bow down to him. So he heads home after receiving quite uh, the honor uh, and, uh, and starts venting to his wife, to his friends, his counselors. And, and before we jump into cha chapter 6 today, I want to anchor us to the very last verse of chapter 5 so we can get in context what's happening here. So let's read together Esther 5, verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, that is Haman, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. Question, approximately how long does Mordecai have? I mean, you're reading with me, right? Verse 14. Not, not long. <laughs> That's the correct answer. Not long. Not, less than 24 hours. We're here in the evening sometime. And Haman is consulting with his wife, with his, with his friends. And they give him this advice. Build a set of gallows, 50 cubits high, towering above every tree around us in the ancient Near East. And then in the morning, first thing... At the break of dawn, head to the king and ask Mordecai to be hanged on it. How long does he have? Well, he's got hours. We don't know how many hours, but not many left. The most powerful man in the kingdom of Persia, save the king, has just painted a target on Mordecai's back. The same man, I'll remind you, has already convinced this same king to wipe out the entire Jewish race. So taking out one measly Jew in Haman's mind shouldn't be that hard of an issue. Now, to help us track through the events of Esther chapter 6 today, I want to uh, show you, I think we've got it for you here, uh, a timeline that hopefully as we move forward will help us to keep the chronology in order. Man, it's, a, it's an amazing uh, God-ordained path that we'll see unfold here. So we're starting with Esther 6. Leaving off with this looming statement at the end of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 14. In the morning, have Mordecai hanged. All right. Now, remember, before we, we pick up in 6, verse 1, that this is not any old hanging. 
Mordecai's execution is meant to be both a brutal and public spectacle. The gallows, we've seen that word just echoing throughout the book of Esther. The gallows weren't a gallows as we would think of them today with, with a, a rope and a noose. These, this gallows was uh, merely a wooden pole, a grotesque stake that would have impaled condemned criminals to die and then been raised up for everyone to see don't mess with Persia. This is what happens when you mess with Persia. Now, 50 cubits. I, I was trying my best to give you an example last week. I said, uh, you know, the highest point in this room here, if you take a look up, is 22 feet. That's the peak of the ceiling. So, so triple that and then some, and you've got a sense for 75 feet. I tried to one-up it this week, and you might have noticed some balloons in the parking lot. Benjamin and Sam were helping me this morning. One, one set's tangled in a tree, the other set's like diagonal. So I'm, I'm not sure it, they accomplished their objective, but if the wind stops blowing for a moment, as you leave, you can see just how high, just how striking this spectacle, this grotesque spectacle would have been that Haman has planned for our, our boy Mordecai. It's bad news for Mordecai. Just hours left to live. Now, with, with that tension in mind, let's pick up together in chapter 6, verse 1. We'll be reading Esther 6, 1 to 3. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him interesting interesting i want you to look back with me you should be looking at your bibles now on your phones or in front of you how does chapter six begin like what are the actual words chapter six begins on that night the king could not sleep here's our second point on our timeline I hope you're connecting the dots, right? The, the chapter headings that you see in your Bible are not inspired by God. Those are just added later. All the numbers, the versification to help us keep track of where we're going. And aren't you glad? It's easier for us to use those to navigate through our Bibles. But there's no break in the original text, in the original writing of this beautiful book of Esther between chapter 5, verse 14, and chapter 6, verse 1. On that night... Chapter 6, verse 1, which begs the question, well, which night was that? Well, friends, it was the very same night that Mordecai's gallows had been constructed. On that night, just happens to be the night that Haman is waiting and planning to take out Mordecai the Jew. That night, the king just happens not to be able to sleep. Coincidence? Well, just wait. Now, what's the king, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes in Greek, same, same uh, name, same guy, different translation, King Ahasuerus, what's he do about his royal insomnia? 
Well, he just so happens to request the chronicles of his reign to be read to him, which I find to be a very curious move. Listen to how one biblical commentator puts it. I've been borrowing from him heavily this series. His name is Ian Duguid, former Grove City College professor. I think he's a Westminster now. I love how Duguid puts it. He writes, even in the absence of late-night television, an insomniac like Ahasuerus had no lack of potential entertainments. Food, drink, dancing girls, not to mention an enormous harem. All kinds of pleasures waited at his disposal. Yet, he chose instead to listen to a reading from the government records of the chronicles of his reign. If anything would send King Ahasuerus back to sleep, it would surely be this. Some of you understand that strategy. I'm just going to read and I'll be, I'll be out like a light soon. Now, now, of everything that had happened in King Ahasuerus' reign, most biblical scholars believe at this point in his reign, he'd been on the throne for 12 years. Everything he had done or had been done uh, about, around, surrounding his rule would have been meticulously recorded in these chronicles. 12 years worth of reign. Of all of that history... The king just so happens to read or to have read to him a part, a curious part of his history about how this guy named Mordecai uncovered an assass assassination, excuse me, attempt, Mordecai. So if you're tracking, right, some flags are, are flying in your brain. This is the same Mordecai who's about to be executed the very next day, in a matter of hours, the king just happens not to be able to sleep. He just happens to have the chronicles of his reign read. He just happens to have a, a portion of that reading be about how this very same Mordecai, who's about to be skewered on a pike and raised up for the whole kingdom to see, he reads about how he, he saved his royal skin. Oh, and, and remember, if, uh, if you can reach back in your memory from chapter 2, when Mordecai uncovered that assassination attempt, he had received no recognition for saving the king's life. And friends, are you following this? I hope you're noticing that these coincidences are heaping up here in a way that is far more than mere happenstance. So here we are, if you're uh, helped by the timeline, and I apologize if it's a little small for you to see, I can, I can email it to you this week if you're interested. Haman, step one, Haman builds gallows for Mordecai. Step two, the king can't sleep. Step three, the king orders the book of Chronicles to be read, and then this reading, just coincidentally, happens to reveal how Mordecai was never rewarded for saving the king. All right. The plot thickens as we continue in verses 4 and 5. Let's read together. And the king said, as just as he's hearing this account of Mordecai saving his life, and he's, as he's realizing he's never been rewarded, and the king said, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. I mean, come on now. 
It's getting a little bit crazy. Would you agree? This is the very moment the king is hearing about Mordecai saving his life. And then the guy who's trying to take Mordecai's life comes into his court. The king invites him in. And, uh, and here's the, the next point on our timeline, of course. We get Haman about to do what he's come to do. Remember, his expressed purpose for being there. Haman's expressed purpose for coming before the king was to, was to kill Mordecai, to hang him on these gallows. Now, just a, a brief pause here for us to understand the weight of what's happening as these details are being masterfully woven together in a way that no one human being could ever piece together. Notice here that the king has no idea what Haman's up to. He's got no clue that, that a gallows have even been made. And Haman has no clue that the king spent a sleepless night providentially reading about the very man he's requesting to have killed. All right, if you're, if you're grasping the tension here, let's read, continuing in verse 6. Esther 6, verse 6. So, Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor... Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, on whose head a royal crest is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done for the man who the king delights to honor. And the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you've said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. This is nuts. You agree? I mean, before Haman has the chance to speak, it's daybreak. He, he's, he's there early. The king's spent all night reading about his reign. And, and before Haman lays his bloody proposal before the king, the king beats him to the punch and asks Haman, Hey, what should be done for the guy that I delight to honor? Now, uh, Haman, who had a, a bit of an ego issue, <laughs> right? He had uh, quite the hubris. Haman's proverbial chest swells out as he begins to think to himself, I'm the most honored guy in the kingdom. Who would the, who would the king seek to honor rather than me? So Haman swings for the fences. He asks for royal robes to be worn for this individual. The horse that the king himself has ridden, a royal crown, translation make this guy look like royalty and then have one of your most noble officials high king dress this man and publicly parade him through the streets of Susa declaring for all to hear 
about his honor and his delight before the king. Now, as Haman is just dreaming, right? I mean, you just this, this is as good as it gets, he's thinking. The king, by the way, totally unwittingly, he has no idea what Haman has schemed up. The king totally unwittingly pronounces the biggest about face imaginable. I mean, think about it. This is a seismic reversal, a seismic pivot on a dime. Haman had just built a gallows 75 feet high for the express purpose of making the most shameful, humiliating public display of Mordecai's death that he could possibly conceive. And the king, totally clueless to Haman's wicked scheme, says, You! You're my most noble official. Take the very guy your soul despises. The very one whose public humiliation and death you've been plotting. And I want you to personally dress him in my royal robes. Can you imagine? Haman has to dress him. He, he dresses him in his royal robe, set him on a royal horse, and publicly parade him throughout the streets of the city. The king says, by the way, Haman, make sure you leave out nothing that you said. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I think I would pay big bucks to see the look on Haman's face in that moment. Talk about whiplash. This smug, self-assured Haman goes from pompous to pitiful, from regal to ruined in an instant. So, we see the sixth and final point on our timeline here. We got Haman entering to ask the king for Mordecai's death, or that's his plan, and now the king ordering Haman to publicly honor the very same guy he's been plotting to kill. So, Mordecai goes, if you're tracking, from the most severe punishment conceivable in the Persian Empire to the most exalted position conceivable in the Persian Empire. And we have begun, friends, to see the tide turn in the book of Esther. Let me ask you a simple question. Simple question. Who did this? Who planned this out? Who was in control of these events, these wild circumstances that would affect such a mind-boggling result? Was it the king? Oh, he's got no idea what's going on. He couldn't control his sleep. He couldn't control what was read. He couldn't remember who this Mordecai was. He didn't know that Haman was planning his death. The king's not calling the shots. Was it Mordecai? No, Mordecai's here, Mordecai's honored, but he's a passive participant in this text, is he not? Mordecai's not making any decisions here in Esther 6. Was it Esther? Oh, we don't see her anywhere. Esther's about to be featured next week in chapter 7 once again. Esther's not calling these shots. Certainly wasn't Haman. No, 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 no. This is obviously the undeniable, superintending hand of Almighty God. And watch this. Even Haman's pagan wife and counselors can see that. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. 
And Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then these wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared for him. Now, this is an absolutely amazing moment, a fascinating pronouncement, I think, by Haman's very own wife, Zeresh, and his friends, so-called friends, these counselors. Note how they say, this is interesting language here in verse 13, how he's begun to fall. If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, which connotes what? That Haman is going to keep falling. They're saying to him in no uncertain terms, Haman, there's no recovering for you, man. If this guy's a Jew, you're doomed. And the wording here, we miss it in the English, but the wording here in verse 13, look with me in verse 13. This is fascinating. If Mordecai is of the Jewish people, we read in English. Some of your English translations might read here. If Mordecai is of the Jewish origin, literally in the Hebrew that this text was originally written, that phrase in verse 13 is rendered, if Mordecai is from the seed of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? Because if you've read your Bible carefully, that word seed, the seed of the Jews, should be sending off alarm bells in your brain, in your heart. First time we see that word seed in Scripture in a powerful way goes back to the garden in Genesis 3.15. As the wheels had fallen off the bus of humanity when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God's word and his ways and as God is pronouncing judgment, even in the context of judgment against a sinful and rebellious humanity, God's grace Breaks through and we get in Genesis 3.15, which is often called the, the proto-euangelion, the, the, the first gospel telling in all of scripture. Genesis 3.15, God says to the woman, your seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. Your seed. And from that moment on, the seed of the woman is a very big deal. Everything rides upon this seed. The salvation of the human race is dependent upon this seed that would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. Years later, God would say to Abraham, the father of the Jews, by the way, that his seed would multiply and would be a, he'd be blessed and would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Friend, don't miss the gospel here in Esther chapter 6. If Mordecai is of the Jewish seed, you're toast, man. You're, you're toast. Don't miss their logic. They're so sure, aren't they, about Haman's fall? And it's because 
He's of this Jewish people that apparently Haman is doomed. Remember, back to chapter 3, verse, verse 1. You could keep a finger in Esther 6 if you want to flip back and check me. When Haman, this enemy of the Jews, was introduced in the book, we learned that he was Haman the Agagite. Haman from the kingly line of Agag, the Amalekite, the sworn enemy of the Jews. How, how, how's Haman's wife and how do his friends have so much certainty that he is a goner? Well, because they've seen the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob vanquish his foes. Deal decisively with Amalek, Agag's line, again and again and again. And they're saying, oh no, this is not looking good for you, for, for us, Haman. And as the words of warning are, are escaping their mouths, the king's eunuchs come to whisk Haman away to his second banquet with Esther the queen. That's, that's next week, Esther chapter 7. So there's a high-level sketch, if you will, of the events of Esther chapter 6. And it is just bonkers. Would you agree? The sovereign hand of God bringing together what no man could do, what no, no mind could conceive here in this moment. God's name in the book of Esther is not mentioned, but his presence, his fingerprints are just writ large throughout the biblical narrative. So, so what do we do about this? this? This crazy story, or this part of the story, Esther chapter 6. Well, if we want to be faithful to the text, we don't simply want to stop here at understanding what it means, what it says. We want to begin to apply these truths to our lives. Remember James' words? Don't just be hearers of God's word, but doers of it. So, so what do we do about these truths in Esther chapter 6? That's, that's the question. I've got one major overarching biblical principle, this, this, this huge theme that we've got to hit as we zoom out from Esther chapter 6. Make sure we're understanding this well. And then four application points, four points, practical points for us as the people of God today in 2022 to do, to walk out as we seek to be faithful to this broader biblical principle so let's let's lay them out here here's here's the the theme we'll start with a broad overarching principle that's just screaming at us from esther chapter six here it is god is sovereign god is sovereign he is he is over all things he controls both the big stuff and the little stuff there's nothing he does not rule over in life and in living. We see this broader principle packaged, captured here in the text of Esther chapter 6. Let me give you three supporting verses from elsewhere in Scripture to reinforce what a very big deal this principle is uh, about God's sovereignty, his, his rulership over all the events of, of human history. The first one is 
uh, fairly hard to miss. The connection here to Esther is uh, somewhat clear. I think you'd agree. Let's, let's uh, take a look here. Proverbs 21.1. And, and you can stay in Esther 6. I've, I've got these on the screen for you so you're not having to bop too much. Or you can jot down and, and meditate more on these later. Proverbs 21.1. Listen to this. And think about what we've just read together. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Isn't that good? Mighty King Ahasuerus, the the ruler over 127 provinces stretching over three continents, the one who speaks and knees knock, the one whose very queen approached him with great trepidation, wondering whether her life would be spared or not. Mighty Ahasuerus, God says, yeah, he's, uh, he's right here. I'll do what I want with King Ahasuerus. His heart, the heart of the king, like a, like a water course in God's sovereign hand. What do we see here? God is in control. He's in control over the big stuff. Let's hit that one. Here's a verse that we've read, that we've known well, I think a a year or so ago. Perhaps going on two years now. Man, time's swinging by. We worked through the book of Colossians together. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Think about the sovereignty of God over all things, over the big stuff as we read this together. For by him, speaking of Jesus now, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Sound familiar, Esther 6? All things were created through him, through Jesus, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, let me just remind you of this this morning, friends. In Christ, all things cohere. If he should for but a moment cease to will the molecules of your body to stick together, I I don't know what would happen. He holds the universe together. God is sovereign. Over the big stuff, over the whole created order, over the heart of the king. And yet, amazingly, he has a keen eye for the micro as well. You know, God is also sovereign over the small stuff. Let's look at at this example before we move on. Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. This is Jesus speaking. You remember the one who, who holds the universe in his hands? Jesus, God in the flesh, speaking to, to, to us in Luke 12, 6 and 7. And he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. God says, every time a sparrow falls... I see it. I know it. There's nothing, big or little, Friendship Community Church, that escapes 
God's sovereign gaze. He's in charge. He's in charge of the king's sleep patterns. He's in charge of where, where the librarian flipped in the annals to read about Mordecai. He's, a, he's in charge of the hairs on your very head. God is sovereign. Now, does this mean then that you don't really matter? Because God's rigged it anyway. God's, God's sovereign, so our human actions, we're just really like uh, pieces on a chessboard anyway. I mean, what, what's it even matter? Do we even need to try? No, that's of course not what it means. And that's not faithfulness to the broader counsel of, of biblical truth. God's sovereignty over the big stuff, over the little stuff, over all stuff, does not mean that our actions or that our choices are any less real. Look, think about our text for a minute. Think about Esther 6. Was Haman really making these choices? Absolutely. Haman was absolutely operating with his, within his own agency. He was scheming. He was devising these plan up, plans up. They were his thoughts. They were his plans. By the way, we've said it. It's just worth repeating. Haman schemes up the most severe punish, punishment imaginable to his twisted brain. Gallows, a grotesque death pole 75 feet high that's messed up and yet not only does he scheme up the most severe punishment imaginable i don't know if you noticed when when the reward was issued to mordecai whose idea was that it was haman's idea Haman chose the punishment, and Haman chose, he really chose the reward. And yet it was God working through Haman's real choices, through his real will, through his real agency, who to work according to his sovereign, divine pleasure. We'll soon see God using both of Haman's plans, turning them on his head for his greater redemptive purposes. Friends, the book of Esther is a blinding example of Romans 8.28 lived out. You know that one. If not, you, sh you should learn that one. You should commit this to memory. Romans 8.28, what a beautiful promise. And we know that for those who love God, all things. How many things? Every one of them. All the things. All the big things. All the little things. All the things Work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Are all things working for the good of Haman? Uh-uh. I mean, just, just keep reading a bit. Next week we'll see. Haman has a bad day. For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes, God is always working. Through the big and the little, through the, the good and the bad, and no one can stay his hand. All right. If, if the overriding principle just presiding over Esther chapter 6 is screaming to us, is proclaiming to us the sovereignty of God, then what ought we to do about it? Well, four, four quick things. Here's, here's the first. We ought to... Let go of the illusion of control. 
man, do we like control. Some of us more than others, admittedly. But we, we fancy ourselves the captains of our own ship. The, the sovereign deciders of our own destiny. Friends, we need to let go of the illusion of control. Remember, I'm not saying your choices don't matter. What I'm saying is God's in charge and his purposes ultimately prevail. Check, check these verses out. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. If you've... Uh, Lived a little while. Maybe you're past, uh, I don't know, 25 years old, 30 years old. Just, just keep climbing up. Think back upon the plans of your life. Think back about the dreams you had in middle school and following. Would you say that you have had a lot of plans for your life or a few plans for your life? We're constantly thinking about ourselves. We're constantly dreaming about what might be, what might become. And it's not a bad thing to do that. I mean, after all, we've got to live our life. Many are the plans in a man's heart, Scripture tells us. But it's God Almighty. It's the Lord's purposes that prevail. Let go, friends, of the illusion of control, of the what ifs, of what, what didn't happen, of what could have, of what, what might have been. May we as the people of God learn to hold loosely in our hands the things that we have been given. Our plans, our dreams, our resources, blessings from God, good things. And yet, simply stated, we're not driving the ship. It's just not up to you. It's, it's not up to me. I like what Jesus said, talking about oaths in, uh, in the Gospels. I think this is Matthew 5. I put it on the screen there. Matthew 5, 36. Jesus says, listen, you can't even make one hair on your head, white or black. Some of you are like, sure I can. No, no you can't. You can control the symptoms of what your hair looks like on the follicle up from your head. You, you have no control over what color that hair really is. The reality of that color as it continues to go. Jesus said, you're not even in control of a hair on your head for crying out loud. May we as the people of God learn to loose our grip on the things of life. On our plans for the world. No, I'm not telling you to throw caution to the wind. No, I'm not telling you to sit on your hands and not act. I'm just reminding you what God's word says. Unless the Lord builds the house, you're building in vain. So let's hold loosely what he gives us and be thankful for where we sit. Second application, I think, that we can see from this text here in Esther 6, from this principle that God is sovereign, and, and it's this, that we ought to take comfort. If the sovereign over all God is for us, this is Romans 8.31, if the God who's in control of the king's heart like a water course 
If the God who controls the cosmos, if the God who controls the sparrows and the hairs on your head is for you, who in the world can stand against you? Romans 8, 31. Friend, take comfort in Christ this morning. Your God is good. And you're worth more than a whole lot of sparrows. That's what Jesus says. You know, just thinking about this truth, this, this comfort that we should have with God's love and God's sovereignty and God's power just blanketing our lives. I, I think about my children when they're scared at night. You know what comforts them? My presence. When the kids are, are screaming, when, when, uh, when Tessa, for like the 17th time that night, loses her pacifiers, like falling down behind the crib bed and, you know, groping in the dark. What comforts her? When I rub her back and cover her up again, when she feels the presence of dad or mom. Why? Well, because she knows she's safe with me there. How much more so, friend, ought we to feel safe? Ought we to take comfort in the God who holds heaven and earth in his hands? Does that mean it's going to work out well for you today? Well, define well. I don't, I don't know. You're going to have a good day or a bad day. I don't know if you're going to be healed or if or if this thing you're carrying, God, for his glory, ultimately for your eternal good, is going to have you continue to carry this burden. But you can trust him. And we ought to take great comfort that nothing happens to us in life or death that has not first passed through the hands of our sovereign, loving, heavenly father. Third point of application, take comfort and and hold loosely in your hands. Let go of the illusion of control. Here's the third thing that we can do in view of God's sovereignty, in view of the truths of Esther six. And it's just the flip side of the coin to what we just said. But it's worth noting, I think, because I feel like we struggle with this at times. Here's what we ought not to do. We ought not despair. When the wicked scheme. Now, chances are you don't have Haman breathing down your neck. If you do, uh, let's, let's talk afterward. We'll get you a bus out of town or something. But we know what it means, don't we? For the wicked to scheme. They're still doing it. They, they will always do it. Listen to Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Haman had every resource at his disposal. There's no stopping mighty Haman and God flips this script with a sleepless night 
in some boring government records like that. Don't despair, friend, when you're looking at the world around you. And, and some of us, I think, if we're honest, will admit that we're prone to do this. Some of us, if we look around, find ourselves coming unglued at the seams as we look at the political sector and the nonsense that's out there. November's coming. The economy and all of the ups and the downs and the interest rates and the ay 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 and the social fabric that we see just unraveling seemingly around us. The, the world events, right? You just flip on the news. It can be easy, can it not, to despair. And yet God's sovereignty reminds us as sons and daughters of the Most High King not to be unduly swayed. Remember, friend, Jesus wins. This, after all, is your Father's world. And although it can be hard for us to see through a glass dimly, Scripture says, He is indeed in control. In just a moment, we're going to end by singing, This is my Father's world. Listen to this lyric. You're about to declare to your Maker, to your Redeemer, to your God. We're about to sing this verse. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Believe that? The wrong does seem often so very strong, so overwhelming. The darkness seems like it's getting darker all around us. Don't despair, follower of Christ. This is your father's world, and he's on the throne. Last thing. Application point number four. Here's what we ought to do in view of God's sovereignty. We ought to fix our eyes to borrow from the Hebrew of Esther 6. We ought to fix our eyes on the seed. The seed of the woman. The seed of the Jews. Out of the mouths of Haman's pagan wife and wicked friends. Some friends, right? You're a goner. Is an acknowledgement. If this is the God of those Jews. If Mordecai is from the seed. Of Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There is no stop in this train. The seed. You know, our New Testament teaches us that Jesus is the capital S seed. Galatians chapter 3 verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Makes sense. Abraham, the father of the Jew Jewish nation. The promises of God spoken to Abraham. And then... Paul in Galatians 3 teaches us, he does not say, and to seeds, as in plural, seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, 
and to your seed, singular, who is Christ. Esther, like all of Scripture, points to Jesus. Esther, and all of the law and the prophets, all of redemptive history, rolls back, terminates on, points to, is fulfilled in Jesus, the seed who will crush the head of the serpent and reign forever. Though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet? And Jesus sits on the throne. And this is a good day for the people of God to worship the seed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're in control. God, we don't understand. We, we can't see from our vantage point all of that, all that means. And we confess, Lord, how quickly, how often our minds and our hearts wander off. They wander off into despair. They wander off into selfish, self-serving directions. And Lord, you remind us time and time and time through your word. You remind us through, through natural revelation when we look up at the stars. That you're in control of the cosmos. And you've numbered the hairs on our heads. Teach us, God, what it means to know and believe that you are sovereign. That you are on the throne. And thank you, God, that you can turn the heart of the king like a watercourse in your hand. Would you now, Lord, incline our humble hearts to your glory, to your son Jesus, the Savior, the seed on whom all our hope rests. We love you. Now, abide in us, your people, as we sing your praises now in Jesus' name.